Welcome, and thank you for joining this podcast brought to you by the American Heart Association. The Association's Digital Digest series features a range of podcasts and videos focused on the latest resuscitation science topics. Today, we have Dr. Michael Sayer and Dr. Tom Ray. Can you both tell us what your current roles are? Camilla, I'm the medical director for King County EMS, which provides direction for county fire departments and 911 responders outside of the city of Seattle. That's about 2,2500 EMTs and about 180 paramedics. And I'm Michael Sayer and I'm the EMS uh, medical director for the city of Seattle. And we have about 1,000 EMTs and approximately 75 paramedics. Excellent. And I know all of us have been watching across the country over the course of the last eight weeks as we've been seeing all of these things happening in in the state of Washington. Can you, Michael, just start from your perspective about what happened? And I think we've seen a lot of news reports, and I think it'd be amazing to just hear kind of from your perspective, how did you first know something was happening and maybe that this was something different? Uh, The way I found out about this, and I'm going to quickly give this question to Dr. Ray, uh, was I got a text message or a phone call from the Seattle Fire Chief that he had heard that there was a person who had died of COVID-19, and did I know about that? And I didn't, so I quickly handed that football off to Dr. Ray and asked him if he knew anything about it, and I'll let Tom tell the story, because this was a nursing facility that is in his jurisdiction. Thanks, uh, Dr. Sayer. So so we learned this testing was done when the CDC criteria uh, for testing for COVID, right, when, and to include patients who had unexplained and severe respiratory illness. So the hospital that serves that part of the region, their critical care team and infection control group uh, went ahead and sent that test off to the CDC. And lo and behold, a couple of those tests came back positive that evening of the February 28th. And so that information was communicated uh, to myself. And then we quickly convened with the fire department and paramedic group and began to do our homework overnight that on February 28th into February 29th. So that's, I think, how we first learned of this. And very fortunately, the hospital reached out to EMS, and we were able, in the moment, uh, react and uh, identify all calls that had gone into that facility initially for the last two weeks, and then we expanded that uh, to the beginning of the month, uh, beginning of February, to understand who might have been exposed and take action to, to keep those folks safe and the colleagues safe. And just from the, you know, I know, Tom, you have a background in epidemiology. So when you hear, and both of you obviously in public health, when you first hear a cluster is identified at this nursing home facility, what goes through your head? Well, again, I think we had some uh, lead way because we understood some of the biology of the COVID virus and its incubation period and its onset of symptoms and its infectious nature. So we were able to sort of incorporate that into understanding, you know, how to track exposure and how to quarantine. And very fortunately, right, we have our CDC and we have our public health colleagues. We have, uh, we're blessed to have infectious disease experts in the region. And all of them have really worked well together to provide us guidance and input as we seek to keep EMS involved and, and safe. 
And when you had to communicate this information to your EMS providers, can you talk a little bit about what that strategy was in terms of both helping them understand that they had been exposed potentially to a person who had had COVID-19, but then also what that meant for them and the other folks that they had taken care of or even their families and sort of that spread that we know is so important? I'll start. And Michael's clearly taken the lead in doing a wonderful job of uh, communicating to the uh, other EMS leadership around the country. So early on, right, we work with CDC and public health to make sure we crafted responsible strategies to manage exposure and quarantine and then patients of persons develop symptoms isolation. I would say, you know, we look to the experts to help inform those guidelines. And then we turned around and, and did public-facing presentations to our paramedics and EMT providers through conference call, through educational forums that we have uh, routinely and have kept that on the front burner. Uh, Michael, you want to comment on all the activities you've undertaken on this front? Sure. So within uh, the Seattle system, we quickly scrambled to create some guidelines for our teams and in terms of workplace exposure and to try to mitigate the exposure. We realized that we needed to retrain and refit test the entire workforce. Fortunately, they'd all been fit tested, so mostly it was just a refresher, but we retrained everybody in PPE, and we knew that that would use some of our PPE supplies, but we felt like it was very important to do that to the extent that we could in order to make sure that we minimized exposures to our workers. We went through daily Skype calls with uh, all of the on-duty teams. So we had those four days in a row with the whole leadership and we took questions. So we began to develop a sense for what people were really worried about. And what emerged was they wanted to know that if they couldn't work, that they were going to be made financially whole. Uh, that was a big concern. Mm -hmm. They wanted to know if they had been exposed and went home, were they going to be exposing their families? We had to learn how to message about the differences between quarantine and isolation. And since our workforce is fit tested, we offer the opportunity for them to take home an N95 mask because they already use them at work if they would like. So people can use that to feel a little more secure at home. And we went through sort of a phase of convincing folks that they were much better off being at home in quarantine than they were being in a group at a fire station in quarantine. You know, mm -hmm. And there are a few people that maybe don't have great options, but uh, in general, people are much better off being at home if they're in quarantine than somewhere else. Camilla, I think Michael makes excellent points across the board. And if groups, EMS or hospitals are thinking about, well, how can we get prepared, you know, we continue to have a daily call with leadership from around the county and new scenarios, new questions arise every day. We update information in that. So I think people should establish this network and, and it may sound like you have it on paper, but I would test it and refine it here in the days to come before you actually may really, really need it. That network is really important. I think the other thing that we've done, right, we're a, a complex metropolitan system with dozens of fire departments. And so each fire department has appointed a health officer for this particular issue. Some of them have more than one, but I think it's really important that there's a point person who will take responsibility and be accountable to help guide an agency to be the point person. If there's questions that come forward for medical leadership, that person knows that they have that charge to communicate and to advocate for their department or their agency. Um, I think the other lesson learned here is, is what Dr. Sayer commented on or at least alluded to was 
the front and center involvement of medical direction for their EMS providers. Physicians and, and other uh, allied health professionals who help advise really need to be at the table and engaged and willing to you know, go that extra mile to help address concerns and anxiety among their workforce. And I'll add one more kind of communication opportunity, and that is to be directly engaged with the health department. So whatever that local health jurisdiction is, if it's at the county level, I think uh, both Dr. Ray and I have found that to be quite helpful. Now these, with social distancing, these are mostly, uh, again, daily calls uh, via Skype or Zoom. So being able to raise issues and concerns in that forum and also understand what their plans are and what the current hotspots are has been pretty useful. And EMS is not as impacted by some of this as hospitals are. But other elements, maybe we have some leading indicators that can help the public health authorities understand what's happening on the ground. Yeah, Camilla, if you're not inserted with your public health department or jurisdiction, you need to establish that relationship and insist that you be uh, at least have access to the discussions that will go on on a regular basis, be part of the email chat group and the postings, because it really... Uh, becomes critical and their decisions have implications for EMS. One more point on this is that uh, both of us are in this loop. Hopefully neither one of us gets sick, but if it happens, uh, there's a redundancy feature. Well, and I think that, you know, I think you had also mentioned too the importance of adding fire. Have you guys also connected, I would guess, with the um, mayor's office and police as well, because they're obviously part of the first responder team? So I'll take the lead on that. I think that was something in the first days of the event, maybe we didn't do as good a job as we wish we had on connecting with law enforcement. And I think we've mostly uh, done a much better job in the last week on helping them. I don't think we've solved that problem, but we've improved that relationship and brought them into our fold, making sure that they are on this uh, daily call with the uh, EMS chiefs. So they have the opportunity to raise their issues and hear the discussion as well. Uh, we've established in Seattle that they basically have the same sorts of access to testing, the same screening process as the fire and EMS do. I echo Michael's comments. And the other group that's obviously integral here is Batch, right? So uh, they have been mm -hmm. very important partners in wearing callers to understand when there might be a potential risk and relaying that on to the EMS responding crews who then need to exercise their own set of judgments as they approach a scene and a patient. But, but the dispatch is on these calls daily, and really they've been important partners. Back up to, you know, when, when you had folks on quarantine, how did you handle that from a workforce perspective? Because obviously that has some pretty major implications considering how many folks maybe are, are put into quarantine who may be asymptomatic at this point, and then, of course, the ones that will become symptomatic and have to go into isolation. I'll start, and then Dr. Sayer can add. So uh, we've had a couple of fire departments who were exceptionally impacted at the outset, right, because they had, had unknowingly had these exposures that you know, likely went on for days and weeks, uh, as, we, as we now appreciate. And so it, it caused a real palpable challenge for them to staff and to provide the high level of service that they are accustomed to doing. I will say that they found a way to do this, but that we actively considered contingency plans for how to uh, manage if we had shortfall in staffing. So 
I'm pleased to say we haven't had to, to use these contingency plans, but it is something that we are sort of actively thinking about and planning for. Well, I think we have the preferred mode is that these folks are quarantined at home, uh, so they aren't running the risk of exposing their colleagues to the disease should they have the misfortune to actually become infected. And to the extent that your workforce allows that to happen, I'd say that's the preferred method. But like some of the hospitals in the area, including the one I work at, can't afford to have that many people at home. There's so many that got exposed early on before we recognized what was happening that uh, the workforce would have a lot of people at home. So people have been working while they've been in quarantine status because we have to do that right now at some of the hospitals. But if you don't have to, I would suggest people stay home. And what's the contingency plans that you guys are working through right now? Because I know that's an issue even here in Colorado for us as we start thinking about our frontline providers who um, either now are finding that they are symptomatic. And, and symptomatic obviously can mean you know, something as mild as cough, cold kind of symptoms, but it's hard to tease that out in the absence of testing. So what are you guys doing from a contingency planning perspective? So I'll, I'll take that first and then Tom can weigh in. So I've implemented a symptom tracking system. So for people who are in quarantine status, they go and they fill out a red cap form twice a day and record any symptoms that they have. And then if they turn positive, they get moved into an isolation status and, and hopefully get tested if they develop symptoms, I mean. So for people who don't have known exposures and become symptomatic, they may sort of self-identify and then they would enter that system potentially as well and be in isolation status and get tested. And then recently we've implemented a strategy where every day when people show up to work, they get their temperature checked and they are asked if they have any symptoms and then they're basically turned away at the door. So for the few people that maybe didn't realize that they really couldn't work, we try to catch them then so that they don't infect their colleagues. If we have so many people out sick, fire department has a pandemic plan about how they are going to manage this. And it's quite detailed depending on the degree of involvement of the workforce. And, you know, they'll basically start reducing staffing within the fire service if they have to. It just depends how many people get sick. Yeah, uh, Camilla, it's Tom. Very similar in, in Greater King County. You know, we, we have a, that strategy Michael laid out is comparable in, in the rest of King County. We've, I think, been in lockstep on all these items, and that's very important to, to have sort of a regional approach. I think that's another lesson learned, and, and it's something we practice from the get-go uh, to work together. Um, there's a lot more good ideas and energy and progress that can be made when you sort of share across jurisdictions. And that's certainly something that uh, Seattle and King County has done in this instance. Pandemic plan, if things are critical, uh, we will have to make some hard decisions. And, and Michael highlighted some of the decisions that uh, some, some healthcare institutions have made, having folks work, even though they've been exposed, uh, who are asymptomatic. But that's uh, right now, uh, we, we haven't done that with EMS, and our goal is, again, to, to try to quarantine those people with a known exposure. And so two questions to follow up is that, uh, for those. So um, you guys have made some of these things that you're doing available, right, for community members and for other EMS chiefs, maybe, or folks that are interested online. Is this all available somewhere for them to, to be able to, to get to some of the red cap surveys, for example, that you guys are doing and some of the protocols you all are using? I'll start it. 
folks need to understand that you know every system is different and their structures and operations dictate sort of what's feasible and we have those limitations in our system uh, and so we've had to be practical to understand what we can can implement certainly we posted you know we use web-based uh, learning system called EMS online and we posted many of these materials to the public facing uh, part of that website folks can certainly are welcome to review that it's a work in progress I will tell you uh, many of the items get changed on a on a daily or a weekly basis so the grain of salt is you need to understand how your system may or may not be relevant to some of the recommendations and practices that are ongoing. And then in terms of the red cap piece, we are willing to share, although some of this is really evolving rapidly. So uh, like Tom just said, it's a little different every day. I think that's the, the thing that all of us are living in right now is a lot of uncertainty and knowing that what we know today or even this hour might change in the next hour when the next advisory comes out. But I do think you know, having those resources available, even just if they're simple, simple things like what are the questions I should be asking? When should I switch somebody from quarantine to isolation status? Those are, I think, helpful for us as we're all trying to learn on the fly, if you will. The, the other just follow-up quick question on the hospital piece, you had mentioned that you guys are taking temperatures of folks when they come in, and are you just having sort of greeters at the door when folks come in and, and doing the infrared kind of temperature checks or... How are you guys actually just operationalizing that? So what I was talking about, temperature checks, I meant for firefighters at the, and EMS workers okay. who show up for work. Okay. Uh, the uh -huh. hospital, I think it varies by the hospital exactly how that's being approached. So at Harborview at the county hospital, they are just beginning to implement a plan like that. They've locked the building down. You have to have a badge to get in. If you come in as a patient, you can only bring one visitor with you and, and the like and they ask for about symptoms, I haven't, I'm not clear when they plan to start temperature checks, although I know Tom has at least one hospital in his jurisdiction that has started that. And are those same provisions also going out to any of the folks that are working directly with other patients in external facilities like nursing homes and assisted so, living facilities? So yeah. I'll just comment that obviously in our region, and I think there are now some, some signals coming from other parts of the country that everyone can, can be affected by the illness, but certainly older persons and persons with comorbidities uh, really have uh, take a, the heaviest clinical toll. And certainly the skilled nursing facilities are a um, high risk location in part because of the proximity of folks and then also because of the clinical profile of, of the residents that live there. And so there has been an incredible uh, effort to by public health, the CDC, the Washington Department of Health to rally and bring people up to highest standards of practice and edu you know, by educating and helping to provide PPE, right? I think we, that's a topic that's important as well is sort of the supply of PPE and what we, you know, contingencies to manage that approach and how can we get smart and be as efficient as possible while also providing protection to patients and uh, employees. And so there's been a concerted effort to reach out to the skilled nursing facilities, train and educate and help support uh, understanding that they are a high-risk location uh, where there's substantial consequence uh, to infection. And many of them have also started these sort of symptom checks. Uh, it's one of the new mm -hmm. state rules that they have to do symptom checks, limit visitors, and check temperatures. And I think that's a huge point 
for a lot of us because I'm, I'm not sure if everyone is doing it consistently across the U.S. right now. I, I will say, you know, Tom, you had mentioned PPE, and I think that's something that we're hearing a lot about, especially right now, both in the news and then also as a provider myself and, you know, in many smaller forums as well. How have you been managing the PPE issue? And can you kind of talk about how that's even changed over the course of, of you know, since February 28th? Well, this is a, a, a real challenge, right? I mean, it's you're between a rock and a hard place. I think we want to keep people protected and, you know, guidance from the CDC highlights a particular approach, understanding that there, there needs to be flexibility, the challenges to supply for PPE. So we want to be proactive and have folks uh, protect themselves, but we also appreciate that the near-term horizon is we are not going to have PPE forever. You know, we, we every day talk and think and, and uh, try to manage uh, to the extent possible we're trying to follow the CDC guide. But again, this is a, a moving target and every system is going to have to understand uh, sort of supply and demand and prioritize their approach. You would probably get a different answer from us tomorrow. Um, so I'll stop there. I'll, I'll let Michael reflect a little bit on this. Well, I think some, you know, uh, EMS workers, uh, of course, need to be cognizant of the risks here. And we're trying to create some kind of balance, paying very careful attention to how much PPE gets used, having people understand that there probably isn't going to be a big resupply anytime soon. And therefore, uh, we need to do what we can to preserve our PPE. And then also helping them understand that uh, particularly the skilled nursing facilities have an even greater need. They have an even higher risk group of patients and they have even less PPE supplies than hospitals or EMS. So I, I just also want to really recognize the staff at those facilities, especially the one that went first. I mean, those people kept coming to work. You know, they knew that they had this disease in their facility and that many of them were getting it, and yet they kept showing up every day and taking care of those patients. Well, that part can be understated, right? I, I think there are a lot of people who worked really hard and quietly and sacrificed a lot to try to help here. And in, in, in many parts, it's that life care center in Kirkland. Those employees really are heroes, as are the the EMS providers who, who stepped in and that hospital in that region, Evergreen Hospital, um, those folks have really leaned in and done their very best. Everyone is trying really hard. And what do you think have been the biggest lessons learned? I mean, we've got an audience that maybe is seven to 14 days away from where you are right now in Seattle and greater King County. What are your sort of things either you wish you, wish you had known back then or maybe even had considered doing differently? You know, hindsight is always challenging. Certainly testing is uh, key here. And I think the ability to access testing, which I think is coming online at an increasing pace, will be very important for folks to understand. And, and then I, I think just being personally responsible in terms of personal hygiene, hand washing, and then this uh, social distancing plan, I, I think the models indicate that we have to do this. Otherwise, we're going to overwhelm the health um, resources we have. It'll just come and, and it'll be a tidal wave. And so I think everyone needs to take that seriously uh, as we move forward. 
Michael, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I'd echo that. I think uh, for the EMS workforce, they are taking this seriously in our area. Uh, and I'm afraid that some people will still get the disease either because of work exposures or exposures outside of work. For the regions of the country that don't have as much disease yet, it's so important if you can to test and then quarantine the close contacts and try to get ahead of this. There's a lot more disease out there than we've been able to test for, but that's not maybe true everywhere. And so to the extent that places can be able to test and then isolate and quarantine and mitigate uh, that spread in addition to just a lot of social distancing right now. Otherwise, the hospitals, they're just going to get flooded and the whole system could collapse. And I think there's a perception out there that this maybe won't be that bad or maybe this won't be that long. What are your thoughts right now as you're looking forward into the, you know, into kind of the next two to four weeks? What are your thoughts as you're, as you're looking ahead? There's some local uh, disease modeling experts that did a report that suggests that uh, we're certainly going to continue to see a rise in cases here locally, at least through the first week of April, although it's a model. So there's a lot of uncertainty about that. And the hospitals are all preparing like that's going to be true. And there's going to, going to be a large rise in the number of patients who get sick. It takes a long time from when they get infected till they get critically ill, like 10 to 20 days. And some of this is uh, these cases are beginning now and they're not going to be in the ICU for another week. And so the, the delay here is a real major concern. We'll have to see what happens after April 7th. The, you know, the juxtaposition is you hear these reports that, well, there's only a 2% mortality rate and only, a, a, you know, a fraction, uh, 20% even need to go to the hospital. And most people do fine. And so some people take, walk away with that and feel good about it. But I think if you apply these, the, those proportions to the population, it really becomes overwhelming to think about the number of people that may become acutely ill or critically ill and the number of people that will die from this. So, I mean, we, we go from quickly uh, into the tens of thousands of people that will have uh, critical illness. And, and, you know, when you begin to think about the absolute numbers, we need to understand that the, the small fraction translates to very large absolute numbers that can really uh, overwhelm a health system pretty quickly. And I think I've heard both of you say this before, but it, unless drastic measures are taken, there is the possibility that this could become worse, as we've heard uh, the NIH say and even the CDC say, before it gets better. Yeah, M Michael alluded to those models, which are helpful. And again, if we don't do anything, uh, we're headed for disaster. I, I think that's true. But, you know, the opportunity is here and, and, and we, you know, as a collective need to be responsible and be accountable and practice all the best ideas that have been advocated by health leaders. And if we do that, effects are remarkable and substantial. And I think have a, a good chance to stay out in front and to manage a very difficult situation. Michael, any other final thoughts from you as well? No, I think uh, I'm confident most places are preparing. and. Um, I hope that they realize that they can do quite a bit to mitigate the damage and the harm that can result by taking action now and not waiting. 
Excellent. Well, thank you both so very much. I know you are so extremely busy and just even taking a few minutes out of your day to provide this perspective, I think is going to be so helpful for so many people. So stay safe. Thank you for everything that you both are doing as well as all of the folks in Washington State. I know that we are learning so much from you and we really appreciate all of the collaboration that you have been willing to give us in terms of also just helping to get some of these hard, hard fought lessons that you guys are learning right now out to really the, the general audience that is hungry for this information. So thank you. Sure. Thank you, Camilla. Thank you. Yeah. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Heart Association and the American Stroke Association. For transcripts of this podcast and more information about resuscitation science, please visit cpr.heart.org or engage with us via social media using hashtag ECC Digital Digest. <laughs>